the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything in accordance to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your willingness to engage us with your word. We pray now that you'll give us insight and some understanding on who you are and what kind of relationship that you're calling us into today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we're continuing our spring-summer dialogue, our teaching series called Is This Good News? where we're exploring some of the basic principles to the Christian faith and the Adventist tradition. Last uh, or two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and specifically Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where we heard the story of how things started, how we got into this mess that we are in. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 5 and 6 and talked about God's transforming work he does uh, in a person's life. And you can catch up with all of these at adventhope.com. Oregon. We hope that uh, you'll check things out there. We've also got some exciting things coming up in the future. First of all, next week, Jeremiah Davis, our own Jeremiah Davis. Jeremiah, we didn't welcome you yet. We will in a little bit, but Jeremiah is an old school Avent Hoper and also joining us as a ministry intern for the summer, and you'll hear more from him in a moment, and you'll also hear more from him next week because he's going to be sharing with you as part of this series, and then in two weeks, Sarah King, our own Sarah King coming back from Australia, is going to be talking about the Sabbath and Jael Amador talking about the church. So we've got some exciting things coming up. Glad you're here, and again, you can keep up to date on avenhope.org. Now, I'm going to jump into our subject today because I've never heard it communicated in less than 17 hours. So I'm going to try to go fast. I, I tried this morning. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heavy subject, but we're going to see what we can uh, get done today. So our text of emphasis today comes from the Apostle Paul, uh, he is the, the most prolific writer of the New Testament, or in the New Testament, and he is writing uh, a letter, he wrote this letter that we read to uh, Hebrew uh, Christians. These are believers who come from the, uh, the, the Israelite uh, community, and so he is uh, communicating to them in letter form about the good news, and so uh, he mentions to them this concept that they would be very, very familiar with, and this this idea of a, of a, a sanctuary. Now, the, the sanctuary was really important for Hebrews in the first century because it had played such an important part in their development as a, as a group of people, as a society. And 
and in fact, a relic, a relic of the original sanctuary was even among them. They would have been living in a time when the temple still existed in Jerusalem, or at least it's likely, depending on the timing when Hebrews was written, it was likely that this, the temple was still standing. And so that temple reflected several other incarnations of temples all the way back to the ancient uh, tabernacle, which was again mentioned in our text of emphasis today. Now, the story behind that was that uh, God, way back in the time of Moses, had rescued this group of people from slavery. They'd been enslaved for 400 years. God brings them out of slavery to Egypt and designs that he's going to establish them as a, a community, a, his representative community on planet Earth. And so he rescues them from slavery and then goes about, uh, again, establishing their whole way of living, their, their, their civil life, their, their health principles, their, uh, their interaction with each other. And so you can read about all of these laws in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, some fun reading for this afternoon in Central Park. There you go. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Anyway, they were nomads wandering in the, 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 in the desert, and God is going to establish them. He wanted to establish them as a community of people, and so he gives them these laws that are going to help them to thrive in their relationship with each other, with him, and uh, with themselves. And so part of this was to set up the, the, the community uh, just very practically. So there were instructions given to Moses, who was leading the community, about how they were going to set up their camp, how they were going to live. They, they were living in tents, and so they were to organize their tents all around this central location. And in the central location was this thing called the, the tabernacle, right? And it was literally just a tent, and it had two parts with a curtain in it. One, one, one third was behind a curtain that nobody could see, and the other two thirds the priests were working in every, every day. And this was at the center of the camp, and there was a whole courtyard, and there were all kinds of pieces of furniture and things that had symbols to them. And, uh, and so God established this as really the center of the camp. He also established people who were going to work in this, this center of kind of their religious life. And these were the priests. He established a calendar for them that, that rotated around the, the practices of the of this uh, tabernacle, this sanctuary uh, building, if you will. Now, along a lot of sanctuary jargon that permeates from the establishment of this original little building, if you will, that 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 spreads throughout the rest of the Bible. The truth is that if you really want to understand the the Bible. You have to have some working knowledge, or some of the stories in particular, you have to have some kind of working knowledge of this sanctuary uh, system. There are just so many references to it in, in so much of the rest of the Bible. I mean, think of this story. When, when Jesus first shows up on the, on the scene in the New Testament, his cousin, John, sees him coming, and he says to, uh, to the people around him, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. Now, Lamb of God, if you're familiar with uh, Christianity today, you probably get that reference, but, but if you're not familiar at some level with this sanctuary, tabernacle concept, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you call someone 
the Lamb of God. And there's so many other references like that throughout the Bible, these, these, these allusions to the sanctuary. So it's like almost like a jargon, kind of insider language that you would only know if you're familiar with the, lang- the, the sanctuary concept. And so uh, th- things like sacrificial lamb, the veil, the priest, these are words, idioms, jargon that is kind of used throughout the Bible that if you don't understand the sanctuary service, it's a little hard to understand. The daily, the holy place, the most holy place, unleavened bread, the mercy seat, the throne of God, the ark of the covenant, the tent of meeting, these are all uh, terms derived from this service in this, this, this religious service that was in the midst of the camp of these people who had been rescued from Egypt. I was thinking about this and trying to think of some kind of corollary in our own own culture. And so, naturally, as a baseball fan, I went to 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 baseball. You know, we're in the midst of the baseball season. My team, the Baltimore Orioles, they're number one in all of baseball. Number one in the draft, which means that they were actually the worst team in all of baseball. So, my team is not very good, but I do love baseball. And I think it's you know, baseball is one of those kind of uniquely uh, American sports. I mean, like everything, we borrowed it from the, the, the English, but we kind of made it our own here in, in America. And so much of, of, of uh, baseball culture has permeated, and idioms from baseball have, have uh, permeated our own uh, language. I mean, have you ever been in a meeting where someone said, well, you know, the boss is coming, he's a big hitter? Or, uh, you know, a new a new new person comes up, a new intern maybe comes up, and you say, you know, you're in the big leagues now, or uh, maybe you're in a in a, a meeting and somebody threw a or, or, or asked a really tough question, and somebody says that was a real curveball. You know, these are all idioms that come from baseball, and so th- this baseball has just permeated American culture. There was a time when that was really the only sport, and so for those of you who have come to the U.S. and didn't grow up here, you know, you had to figure out what who curveball. He threw me a curveball. What does that mean? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you say that about a question asked in a meeting? Well, it's an idiom that comes from an institution in which uh, people who have been in America for a long time have value. And so the sanctuary is very, very much that way. There's just kind of this jargon in the Bible that unless you understand the, the sanctuary at some level, you're going to miss some of those references. Lamb of God? Why is Jesus the Lamb of God? Well, it goes back to the sanctuary service. So we're going to spend a little time talking about this idea of a sanctuary. Now, in order to do that, we have to remember, again, the, the origin story. Genesis chapter 3, God creates uh, this, this wor- world for his human kids, and he sets them there. And so Genesis 1 and 2 uh, articulate that story and how good his plan was. But in, and then in Genesis chapter 3, we see that uh, the first uh, kids, they decide that they're going to exercise their gift of free will to choose to go on their own way, to kind of ignore God's counsel and do their own thing. And this, of course, has a profound impact on their relationship with each other, their relationship with themselves, and their relationship with God. And then, though, God doesn't give up on them. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, we're given the great promise, the first promise that God has a plan to, to restore all things, to reconcile this broken relationship that he has between the first man and the first woman, but that now is going to, to impede his relationship with all of humanity. But 
It's not over. He has a plan. And so Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, again, you can read it later on your own. You can go back and listen at avenhope.org to our first series, first teaching in this uh, series. So the idea, though, is that God makes a promise, that there is going to be a one who's going to come and is going to fix things, is going to reconcile things. And so from that point forward, you have all of the Bible characters, uh, all of Bible history kind of looking forward to the coming of this one who is going to make what's wrong right. That's really part of the narrative of the story of God's work in the Bible. In fact, you can make the case that that's really the underlying theme of the whole Bible. God is going to make things right, but it's a little bit mysterious, especially in Genesis 3.15, about how it's going to happen. He, he leaves the prediction very, very mysterious. And so people are thinking, okay, who is this one who's going to come and make things right? In fact, there's some indication in Genesis chapter 4 in verse 1 when, uh, when Eve has her first child that she thinks that the first child who is a boy and, and it was in the he, he and is, going, is the promised one. She thinks, this is, this is a, I have given birth to a son from the Lord. She says, and the idea is that she's thinking, might this be, might this be the promised one who's going to make things right? Of course, we know he was not. In fact, he ended up being the first murderer. And so disappointment from that point forward continued as people kept, kept looking. Is, is this the promised one that God promised in Genesis 3 and 15? But God in his wisdom has just allowed things to continue. Didn't, didn't fix the problem right away. Sin needed to, to be seen for what it really was. And so the brokenness needed to be seen by everyone for what it really was. And so God allows things to, to continue. He doesn't fix the problem. But but God establishes this, this, this visual representation for his plan, and that is rooted in the idea of the sanctuary. Now, at the heart of the sanctuary tabernacle thing that we're talking about is this really, really extensive and, quite frankly, gruesome a system of animal sacrifices, which seem a little barbaric or a lot barbaric to us today, but they, play, they played a very, very important function in the role of the, of the tabernacle of the sanctuary uh, system. So there were, there were two elements to this sanctuary thing. First of all, there was what happened on a daily basis, and we read in Leviticus chapter 5 this, when anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any one of these matters, they must confess uh, the way in which they've sinned, and as a penalty for the sin they've committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. So there's the idea, by the way, of atonement, which means really, literally, at one minute. And so the principle here is that if you recognize that you've done something that has affected uh, your relationship with yourself, with God, or with each other. You to, to go get a lamb and to, or goat, and you bring this to the, the priest. So this is, again, we're thinking of this giant camp where all these thousands of people are living, and in the center of the camp is this tent, and so you bring the lamb to the tent, you meet with the priest, and then there's this killing of this innocent animal, and, uh, and then there's a whole process as to what happens with that. So that's one example. And then in Exodus chapter 29, we read uh, this, uh, that there is a, a regular daily sacrifice as well of a two-year-old lamb in the morning 
and in the evening. And so this is supposed to cover all the sins or the brokenness of all the people of the camp. And so this is just happening every day. So in the morning and the evening, you have these sacrifices. It's called the daily sacrifice. And then throughout the day, people are coming and they're recognizing and acknowledging their brokenness. And so they bring lambs. And so it's just this, it's a slaughter. It's gruesome. It's grotesque. I mean, it's, there is a lot of killing going on. It's kind of barbaric. And I would suggest to you that's kind of the point. It's gross. It's disgusting. There's animals, innocent animals being killed, but it's God trying to communicate a very, very specific message. The, the result of the sin is going to lead to innocence suffering, innocence suffering. And so all of this is pointing back, again, somewhat mysteriously, but pointing back to the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God has a plan. And so each day these, these sacrifices are taking place. And the idea again is that the guilt from the wrongdoing of the person is transferred to this innocent animal and then that guilt is then transferred either to the priest or the high priest or into the sanctuary building uh, it, itself. And so this happened in several ways. In some cases, and again, you can read this this afternoon, fun reading Leviticus. In some cases, the, the priest who was receiving this uh, animal sacrifice would eat the, the animal. And the idea that it was that they were kind of taking the, 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 the meat into themselves and they were going to transfer it. In some cases, they would, they would dip their finger in the blood of the animal. I mean, this is gruesome. I'm sorry. It's gruesome. They would dip their finger and they would go into the building, into the sanctuary building, and again, I said there was two rooms. There's one larger room that priests were all in, and then there was a room that had a curtain, and nobody went in. And behind that curtain was the, the Ark of the Covenant, and inside of that was the Ten Commandments. And so the idea was that the priest would go in, and he would sprinkle that blood from the sacrifice in front of the curtain. And the idea was that the, the guilt of the sins was being transferred into this kind of holding place, if you will, that was the, the, the tabernacle. You guys with me so far? I shouldn't say guys, people. You, you, you with me? I know. Again, I've never heard this in less than 17 hours. So we're, gonna, we're trying to put it in overdrive and make sure that we get something coherent out of this in the next few minutes. So bear with me. All right. So two ways to transfer. The eating or the blood, and there's different reasons why different things would happen. Now, so this is happening every day. A lot of, lot of killing, a lot of gruesomeness, a lot of grossness in this process of transferring sin from the guilty to the innocent. Okay, once a year, once a year, the high priest, there was only one of them, would go into this tabernacle then and in essence clean the sanctuary. Okay, there was a cleaning process. Now, our, our Jewish friends today still celebrate this when they celebrate the Day of Atonement. You know, it was a couple months ago. Here, our Jewish friends were all recognized. This is a day, even today, a very solemn day because the idea is that the high priest is going in. Everybody in the, in the community is reflective on their own shortcomings, their own sins, the, their own brokenness. And the real reflection is, have I repented of my sin, and have I given it over to God? Have I given over my sin to, have I confessed of my sin, and have I given my guilt to the innocent one? That's, that's the whole idea. And so the Day of Atonement is a Sabbath day, meaning that it's a day where there's no work that's happening. This was, by the way, again, mentioned 
here in Leviticus. Let's see, do I have the chapter? Oh, here we go. Leviticus chapter 23, just to give you a little hint. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of the atonement. Again, atonement being the day when things are made at one. Uh, Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourself and present a food of offering to the Lord. Don't do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from the people. So this is really serious. Like If you were not willing to participate in the process of the, your guilt being transferred to the innocent, then you were to be cut off from the people. You just couldn't be in the community because this was such an essential and important element of the whole society. So this Day of Atonement was incredibly, incredibly important. And on that day, the high priest would go in behind the veil. And that would only happen once a year, would behind the veil and would, in essence, remove the, the guilt of the sin from that place. And so this was a special day. Everybody kind of waited with bated breath as to, you know, was, 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 had everyone requested forgiveness? Had everyone turned over their their guilt, and so you can also imagine like the joy when this is over because there's nothing better than feeling like relieved that you have turned over everything and you have no more guilt. Have you ever felt like you're really guilty and then like been forgiven of that guilt? There is no better feeling in the world than being forgiven, and so the Day of Atonement was really a, a day of forgiveness. I mean, once it's over, everyone has, has, has given over their guilt, and after you can just take a breath and we have, we have received the grace of God. This is the basic and most simple idea behind this whole sanctuary service. God, the God who is willing to forgive and make things right, and he does that through the guilt of the guilty being transferred to uh, the innocent. Now, I think at some innate level, again, we as humans kind of just innately get this, because if you've ever been in a relationship with another human being, um, and depending on the kind of the intimate nature of that, whether it's a family member or a close friend, you know this is even more true. But if you've ever been in a relationship with another human being and have been at odds with each other, especially because of something that one of you has done to the other person, maybe you said something that wasn't, wasn't great or maybe you did something and you needed to ask for, for forgiveness, you needed that reconciliation to ha- happen, um, you know how important reconciliation is. You know how important forgiveness is. And so in the big picture, the sanctuary service was really about forgiveness. And if you're going to live in relationship with another human being, or if you're going to live in a relationship with the God of the universe, you want to be right with that person and feeling forgiven and asking forgiven, forgiveness and, be, and asking for repentance just makes sense because it's really hard to live in an intimate relationship with another person when you've done something to hurt them. That's just the reality. So this makes sense, and God had a plan to restore all things. Now, in our text of emphasis today, in Hebrews chapter 8, we are introduced uh, to a new idea, a New Testament idea, that the sanctuary, the sanctuary that we just spent all this time talking about, and that goes back by the time of the first century, by the time when Hebrews was written by Paul to the Hebrew Christians, uh, it goes hundreds of years, this tabernacle, this sanctuary service goes back. Um, actually, thousands of years by this time. So, so uh, Hebrews introduces this new idea, that, though, that this sanctuary that we've been talking about was actually a copy. It was a copy of another sanctuary that exists in the place where God resides. Okay? 
there, it is a copy. This was verse 5 of Hebrews 8, which we read today. They serve, Paul says, at a sanctuary that is a copy or a shadow of what is in heaven or in the place that God resides. So the, 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 the one that was in the community of the ex-slaves, the one that was in the midst of them, that they, all these ceremonies took place in, that was actually just a copy of another one that exists in the place that God resides. And, and Hebrews uh, 8 says that is why Moses had to be very, very specific when he was setting it up because he didn't, you can just do whatever he wanted. There were specific measurements and there was specific furniture that was going into it because it was mirroring, it was shadowing, it was a representation of another sanctuary where God exists. Now, you know, I was thinking about this today when the the celebration or, or acknowledgement, I should say, of the 75th anniversary of uh, D-Day took place. You saw this? When was it? Was it t- Thursday? Wednesday or Thursday? You know, that incredible day when, when the Allied forces landed in France to reclaim uh, Europe and to reclaim France uh, f- first from the, from the Axis powers. And so all the planning went into to that. And I saw this picture of these young soldiers, and they were, they were lying on the ground. This was before the, the event took place. And they had on the ground this gigantic topical map that had, you know, hills and mountains, and they had, you know, houses, and they were writing up papers, and they were drawing on it, and, and they were planning the, the invasion. And so, of course, they need a gigantic topical map to do this, to determine, you know, here, where are we going to go, and to kind of get an idea of what the land is actually like. And so the idea of Hebrews, that Hebrews chapter 8 is introducing is that the sanctuary service and the whole system that went around that, that was in the midst of the camp of the, of the Israelite people, was also a model, just like that one in the preparation for D-Day, and kind of had the contours of the way things are going to go, and it was a visual and visceral illustration of what God's plan was, but it, it's just a copy, just, just like the map that those, those guys on that topical map that actually had hills and valleys and buildings on it, that wasn't the real thing, it was just a representation of the land in which they were going to. Everybody with me here? Okay. A copy. So this is, this is kind of a new idea in Hebrews 8 that Paul is asserting, that this was a copy of something that is in the place in which God exists. And so the primary function of this, the, little, the sanctuary on earth is to provide, again, this visual and visceral explanation of how God was going to go about fulfilling the promise of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 of restoring or reconciling the broken relationship that we as humans have with each other, with ourselves, and with uh, God. So we have a copy. We can kind of get an idea what's going on, but it's a representation of something that's happening in a different uh, place. And Jesus functions as the high priest in the real thing. So you had humans, fallible humans, who were the priests in this, this copy on planet earth, but in the place that God resides, heaven, Jesus is the high priest. Okay, so uh, if the sanctuary, the, the physical location 
uh, of Moses is just a copy of one that's in a different place. What does this mean about the, the services? So we said that there were daily services and we said that there were uh, yearly services. So first of all, the regular daily sacrifices that take place or took place in the tabernacle of Moses. Well, those do have a corollary in the heavenly sanctuary. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're told that Jesus didn't enter the sanctuary by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered by his own blood. So here we have Jesus who is functioning both as the high priest, but he's also functioning as the sacrificial innocent uh, animal. So he's fulfilling all that those symbols, all that that, that copy was, was supposed to be uh, talking about. Jesus is the real thing, if you will. He's the high priest and he's also the sacrifice. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctifies them so that they are outwardly clean, they're superficially clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness and the things that lead us to death, we can be cleansed and we may serve the living God. So the idea is, look, the, the truth is, the truth is that the, the copy, the, the ceremonies that went around that, the animals dying, was a very good visual representation of what was happening, but they weren't really the real thing. In other words, they weren't really accomplishing what needed to be accomplished. They weren't doing the, the cleansing. I mean, people were superficially cleansed, but they weren't really cleaned. The things were not really truly made right. The only one who could do that was God through Jesus, and that's what happened when Jesus came. He became the high priest, and he became the, the real sacrifice that was really going to make a difference. He was going to transcend what animals what the death of animals could do. He was going to fulfill that. So thank you, animals, innocent animals who died, but you were just pointing forward to the real thing that was really going to happen. So yes, the daily practice of forgiveness and transformation also happened, that happened on earth in the Moses tabernacle was also happening in the heavenly uh, sanctuary. But in accordance with this, this idea, again, of day of atonement or day of, of, of auditing. By the way, I should mention, like, in some respect, that day of atonement is a day of, of auditing. Boy, is there any word that gets you more itchy than auditing? Um, but in, in a sense, that was, it was auditing who had accepted the, the gift that God was given. So on day, the day of atonement, you kind of got audited. Did you embrace God's free gift to uh, you? That's what happens on day of, day of Atonement. That's what happens back in the tabernacle times. Who accepted this free gift? And so the Bible tells us, look, there's also a day of atonement in the, in the real thing. In the real thing, there's a day of atonement. Now, there's a kind of a little, little wrinkle to this story. So some, there were some intrepid Bible students in the mid-19th century who became really interested in apocalyptic literature. This is literature in the Bible that refers to the end things, the last times, the things that are going to happen just before uh, Jesus is going to come together. And most of the apocalyptic literature is found in three books, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation. And so this was a time of great upheaval in the world. The American Revolution had taken place not too much longer, not too much earlier than this. Uh, the French Revolution had taken place not too long before this. Uh, this is a time of the Industrial Revolution. A lot of changes were happening, particularly in the Western world. And so people 
started to kind of go back to their Bibles to find out what's going on. There's so much turmoil. There's so many things that are uh, disturbing. And so during this time, there was a lot of uh, investigation, particularly over the apocalyptic literature, because people had a sense like the world isn't where it needs to be. Something feels off. Something feels wrong. And so they went back to the Bible to try to determine what was going on. And it was during this time that, that some Bible students were led to the, particularly the book of Daniel. And uh, there's a verse in Daniel chapter 8 that seemed particularly re relevant for this issue of the sanctuary service. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, and I, I won't read all of this again. You can read this later, and we just don't have time to get into all the details because this is where those 17 hours come in of, that I was joking to you about. Like, this takes 17 hours to talk about. There's all kinds of corollary things, and we can do that another, another time. But in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, these Bible students read Dan, th this verse, and this is the prophet Daniel talking, and it says that God said to him, it will take, or the, the angel of the Lord said to him, uh, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary be, will be cleansed or reconsecrated. And so they read this and said, this sounds a lot. So obviously it's, a, it's the sanctuary word comes up. So this is a reference to this very, very prominent theme in the Bible, this idea of sanctuary or tabernacle that goes all the way back to the time of, of Moses. And so they wrestled with what is the idea that it means to be cleansed. And that seemed to correlate with this idea of day of atonement, the day of audit, the day when God determines uh, who has embraced his, his work. And so, again, without getting into the time details, we can do that another time. Uh, they basically come to the understanding that Daniel 18 was referring to this day of atonement or a day of uh, auditing, and that it was immediately preceding the literal return of Jesus. And through the, the time calculations and, and using a, 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 a kind of proven uh, prophetic prediction that had predicted when Jesus was going to come, also found in the book of Daniel, the 490-year prophecy, which is pretty cool, by the way, and really, really hits on and fits right with the Jesus timeline. They used that same starting date and got to a date, again, in the middle of the 19th uh, century. So the implications of this were, hey, Jesus' return is imminent. Now, they thought Jesus, they said Jesus' return is coming soon, and they thought really, really soon. The reality is the implications are that Jesus' return is imminent and that it seems like human history is in the last phase of, 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 of history before Jesus returns. Okay, that's interesting. But, I mean, who, who cares and what does this really uh, mean for us here today? Well, the idea, again, that... Uh, since the middle of the 19th century, humanity has lived in the last phase of Earth's history actually does have some pretty uh, powerful implications for us. And the idea that the second advent of Jesus is, is imminent, that we're in a time frame where that could happen. Now, if you're here today, you're probably aware that this is a, 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 a community that comes from the Seventh-day Adventist tradition. You may not know what that means, and you may have just showed up today out of nowhere. We're glad that you're you're here, but Seventh-day Adventists really, really, you could say burst out of this idea that Jesus' coming is imminent, and before he's coming, there's going to be some kind of audit to determine who has accepted his free gift or not. This idea is at the heart 
of the Adventist tradition, so much so that when they decided, what are we, you know, we've got this movement and we're really excited about the Bible, what shall we call ourselves? And they said, well, we're really into this seventh-day thing, the Sabbath thing, we really think that's important, and then we're also, we're Adventists, we're Adventists, because we believe that Jesus' second Advent is coming soon. So this little group said, oh, those are the two things that are just really, really make us unique and stand out. So the Seventh-day Adventist, and it's this understanding, it's, or it's from this teaching, the idea that the, 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 there's a sanctuary in heaven, which is clearly taught in the Bible, that Jesus is the high priest of that. He's also the sacrificial lamb of that. But there's also a day of atonement, a day of auditing that takes place in the sanctuary of heaven. And that's kind of one of the last indicators before Jesus comes that we are in the, in the end, if you will, that had a profound impact on this tradition. And so Seventh-day Adventists are, are kind of rooted in this idea that Jesus' return is imminent and uh, he, he's coming. We don't know when it's coming and that he's doing work in preparation even now for his return. Everybody with me? We're not going to go for 17 hours. We're getting close to landing the plane, hopefully. Now, Okay, so if you embrace that, if you're like, okay, 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 I can, I can, I can, I can get the idea that the imminent return of, of Jesus is coming at some point, and we're in the last phase of Earth's history, and even if you can get the idea like, okay, I get the idea that Jesus is going to, you know, do some kind of audit to determine who has in, embraced him makes sense, this leads us to the question of like, oh, okay, well, what does this mean for us, and what is challenging? Because I do think that those two ideas, while on surface we could say, okay, no problem, they do raise some challenging uh, questions and uh, concerns, and so what is it that concerns us about these two issues? Jesus' return may be imminent, and there may be some kind of audit before his return, what is it that's challenging about those? And I think there are a couple of responses to, for, to us for that. First of all, let's be honest, the idea of the end of time is a little terrifying. I mean, even if you're just a, you know, a, a, a godly person of faith, the idea of the end of the world coming, does that disturb you at all? I mean, it's the, that, that very idea can strike some, some fear, the idea that things that as we now know them are not going to be always the way they are and that things could get a little bit messy, that is a little bit uh, disturbing for, for most people. So that idea alone is terrifying. Uh, the other thing that's a little challenging is, look, look, the truth is that uh, the mid-19th century was a long time ago. In fact, 175 years ago. And so this end time thing, like Jesus' imminent return and it coming soon, I mean, how do you define soon? It's 175 years soon. That doesn't seem uh, very soon to me. And so this kind of indefinite, which is kind of hard to live with. It's kind of hard to live on the edge of your seat. Like, okay, now. Okay, now. Okay. I mean, at some point, it's like boy who cried wolf, you know. Um, and so what has happened is we just don't talk about this anymore because we're like, we don't want to keep saying, well, she's coming tomorrow because it hasn't happened. So that's certainly a challenge. And then finally, this whole I idea is challenging because nobody, nobody, I don't think anybody, maybe there's some, some person who likes to be audited. Do you like to be audited? Have you been, ever been audited by the IRS? That's, that's the play when you think about auditing. IR, the IRS, have you been, you don't have to raise your hand if you've been audited. Well, we're going to have a group afterwards and we can all talk and pray for, for each other, uh, for those who have been audited. Nobody likes to be 
audited. It's just something that makes your skin crawl, the idea that there's an, an audit. And so audits before the end, this is not a comfortable uh, feeling. And so the truth is that the audit that is presented with the idea of a day of atonement that happens before the return of Jesus has freaked people out. Primarily, I would suggest, because we have mistakenly believed that Jesus is Santa Claus. You know Santa Claus. Uh, Santa Claus. We're seven months away from Santa Claus arriving. Uh, Santa Claus, we're told by that cute song, has a list. Uh, and on that list are people who are naughty and people who are nice. And throughout the year, you, you could change what list you're on. Do you remember this company? I think it still exists. In fact, we had an Avon Hoper who, I don't think she's here today, who worked for the, the uh, creator of this. Do you remember Elf on the Shelf? Does that still exist? I mean, this was a genius and horrific uh, thing. But basically, there's a whole mythology around this elf that you buy for your children, a small little cute elf, and you set them on your shelf and the idea is that this, this elf has a direct line to Santa Claus. And the elf is going to sit up on the shelf. And when your child is misbehaving, you say, the elf is watching. And the elf is, of course, recording all of the bad behavior of the children and sending that to Santa Claus. Is that terrifying? That's horrific. That's terrifying. I'm, the elf on the shelf. So that was elf on the shelf. But see, what's happened is that, that when we think of, 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 an, of, of an audit, or we think, quite frankly, of Jesus or, or God's work, that, that we're on this, this about like everything that we do at one moment, like, oh, no, are we in or we're out? And it's, that's not a good place to feel like every day you're not sure whether you're in or, re or out. And, and uh, God is taking a record of, no, okay, now he's in. Now he's out, now she's in, now she's out, or there's, and there's elves that are reporting this information, and so there's this naughty or nice uh, list. That is a horrific uh, view of how God works, and yet that's kind of the, the view that many of us have embodied, that we do these little things that are wrong, and God's like, oh, okay, you know, I'm going to shift them over to this list. But then, you know, you do some good praying, or you show up at worship for a couple weeks in a row, oh, now you're on the nice list, and naughty, nice, naughty, nice. What kind of relationship works that way, by the way? Not a healthy one. Not a healthy one. A healthy relationship, you're going to have some ups and you're going to have some downs, but you're not like in the relationship and then out of the relationship. Can you imagine? I mean, imagine that, that intimate relationships would, were like that. That would be horrific. You're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. I don't know where I am, but that's, for many of us, is our experience when we think about our relationship with God. Am I in or am I out? Am I in? Am I out? <laughs> I see you, Kyle. Is that really the time? Okay. It's not 17 hours, but we're getting close. Okay, all right, I'm going to stop now. Anyway, in, out, Santa Claus is not Jesus. You with me? All right. So we don't like the idea of being audited because we think Jesus is like Santa Claus and we're in and off, in and off, but that's not the presentation that God gives. We're not in or out. That's not how the relationship goes. And, 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 we're, and we're not audited on whether we're naughty or nice. Do you know what the audit is? Have you, have you accepted the work that Jesus does on your behalf or not? 
Are you doing God's got a free gift? Do you want it? If you take the gift, it's yours. That's the audit. Are you taking the gift? Do you want the gift? Are you accepting it? That's literally it. It's not, are you on the naughty list? Are you on the nice list? It doesn't work that way. Now, the illustrate this may not work for you, so just bear with me. Let's see if this works. So I was thinking, okay, what corollary of this is? So occasionally, uh, actually more than more than occasionally, I will get a message on my on my cellular device, and it will tell me that I need an update. Do you get those? Sometimes they come at annoying times when you're trying to do real work, and then it says update. And um, but the the reality is that those updates are important. I mean, you can be very cynical about our technology companies, and you probably should be, but the idea of providing updates that will help your phone avoid malicious things that other people are trying to do with it, I can appreciate that. And so you get these requests to update your phone, and there's good news with those requests. It doesn't, thank goodness, it doesn't require you to go in and do a bunch of work and to be some kind of technological wizard and to know how to fix you know, drivers and other things. Literally, I just accept the free gift of my update to my phone and then magic happens. And the phone kind of turns off for a minute and it reboots and everything is made nice and new again. And sometimes there are new things on that phone that I didn't even know or anticipate and it works better and it's faster and people can no longer hack into my, my phone. And all that I had to do was accept the free gift of the update. You with me? This is the principle of the sanctuary and the day of atonement concept. God is auditing. He's just determining who's accepting the gift. The technology companies, they love to do this, by the way. They say there's an adoption rate. 68% of phone users have updated. They, that, because that's a big, they want to see the updates because they know the updates are going to protect their users from harmful things happening to their phones. They want that. So they push them out and then they ask, please update your a phone. Same principle. Jesus has done for us what we will never be able to do for ourselves. We are never, ever going to make the nice list on our own. Thank God Jesus isn't Santa Claus. Thank God God isn't Santa Claus. He's not auditing us on our naughty or niceness. He's auditing us on are we accepting this free gift. And if we accept the free gift... God is able then to make the transformation and the upgrade and do the thing in us that we will never be able to do ourselves. The audit, the preparation for the return of Jesus is who's in on this? Who's accepting the upgrades? If you're in accepting the upgrades, then you're in. God doing the work that we will never do on our own. The good news is that this audit isn't based on our ability to be good or bad. If that was the case, we are in deep, deep trouble. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, who wrote that same letter to, to the Hebrews, said this, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This isn't from yourself. It's a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, but it comes from him. So, the message of this sanctuary concept is that God has had a plan 
for the reconciliation and the restoration of relationships among humans, our relationship with each other, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with God since the beginning. And he's been working, and he gave us a visual representation of how he's going to go back and do it. Their innocence is going to have to suffer, and it's going to be messy, and it's going to be gross, and it's, there's going to be pain. But ultimately, those who are guilty have the hope of a transformed and changed life and to live as ones who are innocent. And this is all through the work of God in Jesus. And as we embrace that work, we can live with confidence that we are in relationship with God. Listen, if I, some of you here, I, I guarantee, especially, listen, we have to be honest, our tradition has, has kind of unfortunately and unintentionally promoted the idea that we're in and out of relationship with God, that we, we never really know whether, where we are. But how, what kind of relation, can you imagine you're not really sure if you're in an intimate relationship with your loved one? Am I? Do they love me? Do they care about me? That's not healthy. That's not healthy. If you embrace the work of Jesus, you are in a relationship, and you may have some behavior that doesn't, isn't going well for you, but that doesn't mean you are out of relationship with him. God is asking us and calling us and inviting us into a relationship with him, and naughty or nice list doesn't work in that. He loves us whether we are naughty or whether we are light, nice, and the question is, you're going to take the free gift. It's a gift of grace, his work, not ours. And then we can take hope also for those of us who've been waiting indefinitely for the, 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 the future to come. That I love this one. This is Second Peter. God isn't slow. Look, it seems like a long time. 175 years is a long time to think, oh, is, is the re- imminent return of Jesus. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with us. He doesn't want anyone to perish, everyone to come to repentance He's wanting everyone to embrace his work, to receive the, the upgrade. It's a free gift, and he's going to wait as long as absolutely possible. Now, there are some today who are still wrestling with this implication and who haven't accepted uh, the work of Jesus on their behalf. And so today, the invitation to you is embrace God's work for you and in you. And God will do in you what you will never ever do for yourself. May we all be people who are embracing the word and the work of the God who cares so much that he sent his one and only, only son to be our sacrifice and our high priest and whose blood makes us clean. In him we have hope. Amen.